Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Ten days after the September 11th attacks, my guest today, Rais Buyan, was working behind the counter at a gas station outside of Dallas, Texas, when a man named Mark Stroman walked in, brandishing a sawed-off shotgun. Stroman was a self-proclaimed white supremacist in the midst of a deadly hate crime spree. Seeking revenge for the recent attacks just days earlier, he roamed the area looking for what he believed to be Arabs to kill. And in that killing spree, he took the lives of an Indian immigrant named Vadusev Patel and Wakar Hassan, a Pakistani immigrant. Stroman shot Rais in the face. But Rais, who was a former Bangladeshi Air Force captain, survived the attack. Stroman, though, was eventually arrested, convicted of murder, and sent to a Texas death row. But as Stroman awaited execution, Rais embarked on an improbable campaign to spare the life of his attacker. That story is masterfully told in the 2014 book, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas by Anand Girdardas, and a major Hollywood movie based on the book is currently in production. Today, Rice is the founder and president of the NGO World Without Hate. And when we caught up, Rice had recently returned from a trip to Canada sponsored by the U.S. State Department, where he told his story. That trip also included a visit to the Islamic Center of Quebec City, which was the scene of a mass shooting hate crime just one year ago. We kick off discussing this trip and Rice's work with the State Department before entering into a long and powerful conversation about Rice's experience and the power of forgiveness. Needless to say, this is a pretty emotionally heavy episode. It's the story of one immigrant coming to America, to be sure, but it is also a complex reflection on loss and trauma and forgiveness, and this is not a conversation that I will ever forget. And now here is Rais Buyan, president and founder of World Without Hate. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, um, end of last year, I was invited to share my story and uh, talk about my work uh, to a group of staff of the State Department, and um, where I uh, expressed my desire to serve my country in any capacity. And I also talked about uh, sending peace activists and uh, human rights advocates, along with the politicians and the diplomats, 
to regions uh, in need of in need before conflict or uh, violence erupts or the ethnic cleansing starts in the name of uh, self-defense and uh, terrorism. And um, after the talk, uh, within a few weeks, I was invited uh, to be a part of the Speaker Program Bureau. And it was a great honor. And I was extremely humbled to have been asked um, by the State Department to serve my country in this extraordinary way. So, so basically, this, this State Department Speakers Bureau is, it's not something I had heard of, but and I suspect probably it's not something a lot of my audience has heard of, but basically, it's a way for the State Department to um, harness and, and tap the expertise and the stories of private citizens and, and sort of send them abroad to spread, uh, send a message? Absolutely. Um, and that's what is this, uh, this program is designed with. Uh, they select a variety of Americans from uh, different field uh, who has mastered on that specific field and they send them to the rest of the world um, to, to, to talk about those topics and bring awareness or to you know uh, 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 shed lights on different topics and uh, also represent the country. And so that's what sent you what brought you to, to Canada. Can, can you describe the, the trip? Where did you go? What, where did, who, what was your audiences? Well, I was uh, invited to visit uh, Halifax, Montreal, and Quebec City. Uh, it was a five days uh, trip, and uh, to talk about, uh, I mean, to uh, speak to a variety of audience, starting from uh, junior high school students to uh, universities students, uh, town hall, law enforcement officers, and different nonprofits uh, organization. Um, and the and the topic I actually focused was uh, combat hate and violence and uh, help develop positive uh, social identities and how can we overcome the ignorance and bigotry uh, you know, that is dividing us further and further. And one of your, your stops and, and visits was to the Quebec Mosque and, and Islamic Center that was a site of this horrific mass shooting just uh, over a year ago, killing six people and injuring many others. I mean, just like the the... the what was that experience like? I mean, it must have been like a very heavy experience for you personally, I imagine, encountering people who have lived through an experience just so very similar to your own. Well, it was a uh, very tragic incident what happened uh, to the G January 2017. Uh, this gunman went inside this mosque um, and opened fire where when people were either praying or some of them were just sitting in the mosque and uh, you know, having a chit chat. Uh, I mean, when I, when, I, when I went inside the mosque, I mean, I closed my eyes for a few seconds and I tried to imagine what went on that day, what people felt and how these gunmen, what went his, in his head and what went wrong in his life that he, you know, he came to this mosque and didn't hesitate to open fire to this peaceful innocent people. Um, and then when I visited the mosque in, you know, in, uh, inside, I saw some bullet holes. And when I heard the stories that how people were, you know, trying to hide, how they were trying to um, save each other, it was extremely painful um, to just to hear all those stories. It was extremely heartbreaking, painful, and I couldn't imagine what, when, when, what happened those few minutes when the gunmen opened fire and, and what people went through. And what did people 
want to learn from you about your experience having lived through something, you know, so, so similar? Well, as a victim of a hate crime, um, I shared my story with them and uh, the process I went through that helped me uh, to, go, to go through a healing process where I grew mentally, psychologically, spiritually. And uh, the, the journey I have taken uh, moved me from a place of pain on the deepest level to a place of hope for a kinder world, a world without violence, a world without victims and a world without hate. I shared my stories in hopes of combining our efforts to combat hate and ignorance in that city and also, you know, rest of the world that, you know, um, our pain and suffering should not go in vain. Rather, there is a lot of, lot of things to learn from this and, and reflect in our own lives and find out how can we find more ways to connect uh, in a human capacity that will help us to overcome the, the, uh, the ignorance and the hatred that is popping up all over the world right now. Did any of, of the victims that you spoke with, um, obviously their experience is much closer to, to the, the time of the tragedy just over a year ago and, and your process I know was a years long one. Um, but uh, are they prepared to sort of take the steps that, that you took in, in your journey towards forgiveness? I mean, have they, did they express to you their ability or to to forgive this this person for doing what he did well uh forgiveness is a is a journey uh you know it takes time you know and every incident is unique uh in some cases it may take longer in some cases it may take you know shorter time uh, but it has to come from within it cannot be pushed a person cannot be pushed to forgive someone it has to come from within and to do that People has to go through a process. And what I found that they're in the process and that they were extremely inspired with my courageous journey. And I could tell that we were able to touch each other's life. And um, we, we also talked about how can we move forward instead of seeing us as a victim. Let's, let's find ways to use our stories to combat hate and violence. And I have seen the, the tremendous hope that you know, uh, they want to do the same thing. But I also felt that it would need time to come to that decision, to make that, that, that decision to, uh, to forgive the perpetrator and also you know, uh, start a journey uh, to combat hate and violence. Can, can I ask, because I, this is just, just sure. interesting to me and, and also something that I really have a hard time understanding and, and um, wrapping my head around this, this notion of, of forgiveness. I mean, I guess I get it. Um, on an intellectual level, um, but I, I don't really get it on like an emotional level. Like, what what is that first step uh, that that you took, or that you might advise um, victims of of this hate crime to take? Well, um, um, I mean, I would say um, the act of Act of forgiveness does not come easy for most of us. It's a, it's, a, it's a human quality, but it is highly misunderstood because uh, when you talk about forgiveness, people start thinking, okay, if I forgive, I would look weak. Maybe the perpetrator will be off the hook. There will be no justice. And, um, you know, uh, when, we are, when we are hurt, uh, the human, human tendency is to recoil uh, in self-protection. And um, 
we are not likely to quickly respond with mercy and understanding when we have been wrong. So people need to go through a process and, um, and also uh, need to take time. And time is an important essence here that will, will help you to, um, to go through this process. And during that process, uh, you know, uh, you need, people need to think um, that what is the benefit of this forgiveness and what is the, you know, by taking revenge or by hurting someone back because that person hurt you in the past, what, what, how it benefits individually and also as a society. So if we think deeply about all this kind of thing, it will definitely help a person to, to go through this journey. And um, uh, I would say that um, if we also understand the actual, actual meaning of forgiveness, that it will help people uh, to practice more and be, become empathetic and forgiving. And as I said, that um, the forgiveness does not mean the criminal is off the hook. Rather, by forgiving the criminal, you are giving a, him or her a chance to, to, uh, to come back to you and ask for mercy and find ways to, um, to, to, you know, uh, to build a, a better understanding, a better bond, a, a peaceful um, bond. And by forgiving, actually, you are taking the control of your life, your happiness, and your freedom back to you. And uh, the longer a person holds the grudge, uh, the, you know, the, the longer his or her burns, and the longer is the pain, the longer you let the other person who hurt you to control your happiness, your freedom, and, and your, your self-control. So there are a lot of benefits to that, but people need to go through a process for us to understand how it benefits. And from my experience, what I would say that um, from, um, from my uh, personal experience and the courageous journey to forgiveness, I have discovered as research also confirms that the forgiveness can make us happier, improve our health, sustain relationships, and boost kindness and connectedness. Ben- forgiveness benefits everybody. Um, so let's let's uh, talk about you and your story and and your journey. Um, both, you know, from from Bangladesh to the United States, but also your your journey to uh, forgiveness and and healing and starting your current uh, nonprofit and, and NGO and your work today. Um, so so just going back, I, and and um, I should say I was so moved by Anand's book, True American. I look forward to seeing the movie whenever it comes out. But it was just an amazing book, and I, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you. Um, so let's go back. Can you can you uh, just Tell me and tell everyone, where were you born? When were you born? What was your family life like uh, back then? Well, uh, sure. Um, I was born in Dhaka, uh, the capital city of Bangladesh. I'm a big and, fan, um, by the way. I've, I've been there once and I've been to Chittagong. I, I really uh, have a great affection for, for Dhaka and, and Bangladesh in general. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, so, yes, I, I was born uh, uh, in, in the capital city of Bangladesh. And... Um, as a child, I had a dream to be an Air Force pilot. And um, so I attended a military uh, boarding school, which was one of the best educational system in the country. I uh, spent six years uh, in that military boarding school uh, from seventh grade to 12th grade. And um, after that, I was lucky. I actually worked pretty hard 
um, to, to join Bangladesh Air Force. And after I spent there two and a half years, went through vigorous training. And after graduating as a, as a pilot officer from the Bangladesh Air Force Academy, I did not feel my destiny was there. So when I got a chance, come to the United States for... Well, what, what happened? So, so you, you were flying planes in the Bangladeshi Air Force? Or... Uh, yes, because, you know, what happened, I spent almost six years of my teenage life in a military boarding school um, where, you know, I left home at age of 12 and stayed there for six years. So I, would be able to, I was able to come back home every four months for maybe a couple of weeks and then go back uh, to that, uh, which was to that school which was 400, uh, 400 kilometers from home. So I, I actually lost my teenage. I wouldn't say lost. I would say actually I, um, you know, uh, I was in a pretty strict, disciplined mm-hmm. environment for six years. And uh, then joining the military again in another three and a half years. So I kept asking myself that, uh, you know, 20 plus years of my uh, life, um, I actually I spent almost like nine and a half years of my of my uh, you know, early life in a military environment. So when I'm going to see the world, I had another dream uh, to come to USA for additional higher education. But if I stay in the military, that dream would never come true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted well, to- Where did your dream, that. where did your dream come from to come to the USA? Well, first of all, from the uh, watching lots of uh, Western movies <laughs> uh, when I was in my high school, I was a big fan of Wild Wild West movies, uh, you know, uh, which I had one? a dream to. Uh, there are a bunch of them, like for a few dollars more, uh, good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I had a dream in my childhood to to visit the wild wild west and see all those things in my own eyes. Like for example, the pubs with the swinging door. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and cowboys, cowgirls, yeah. you know, uh, wearing boots and buckles and uh, hats. Yeah. So it was a dream. Uh, um, to visit the U.S. and uh, when I was in, when I was attending the military school, uh, many of my seniors who were attending U.S. universities visited the college campus uh, many times and shared the beautiful experience about their, you know, uh, their time in the U.S. universities and how peaceful, how, you know, how much they're learning about, you know, many things. It really uh, inspired me that maybe one day I would go to USA for attending universities. And and so then. What, like, how, how did you get the visa? Like, how did that actually happen? Well, um, so it was not an easy process because um, uh, getting a U.S. visa was not, was not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also had the fear that uh, to go to USA, first thing, I need to get a visa. And uh, the U.S. Embassy in Dhaka, a large red brick complex, mm-hmm. uh, was That's- a symbol of pr- yeah, I don't know. I, where I stayed was right by the embassy, although I don't know if back then it was in the same location. Uh, yeah, it was in Baridara. Yeah, Baridara. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, yeah, exactly. That, right, that's, where I, yeah. that's where I stayed, yeah. So it was a large red brick complex, and uh, it was a symbol, symbol of pride, uh, prosperity, and freedom for me, but also a fear of the unknown, uh, the unease of uh, taking a step toward my dream and losing it. Um, but there was no other option but to face my fears head on. Otherwise, I would never uh, fulfill my dream. wouldn't be able to start my new chapter of my life. Uh, so, you know, uh, I started preparing myself, putting together all the documents, filled up the application form, and uh, went to the U.S. Embassy. 
pretty early in the morning, like around six o'clock. As soon as I uh, went the main, when as soon as I arrived at the main entrance, um, you know, there were like more than hundred people standing in a line ahead of me, trying to do and the exact the, same thing. Exact same thing. The NBC opened around eight thirty. The crowd of people called to proceed inside one by one. Uh, to submit their passport application and visa fees. And I kept praying that I would get inside. But unfortunately, my prayers were not accepted. <laughs> I was disheartened, disappointed, and exhausted, called another taxi and went back home. Uh, despite my sadness, I had to rebound and I had to try again. So I tried again. And finally, uh, the fear and anxiety had been defeated by my strong dedication and uh, determination. My dream of visiting the United States for additional higher education was finally achieved. Uh, and standing, you know, standing outside the, the embassy with a visa in hand, I looked down the street where I spent numerous hours filled with fear and with hope. And uh, I never could imagine, uh, I never could have uh, imagined that uh, through this painful experience, God was actually paving a very specific path for me to be stronger, to conquer my fears, to impact others uh, in my dream country, and uh, to one day serve my adopted country through my partnership with the State Department. So, so you got a, a, a visa to study in the U.S.? Right. It was not the diversity lottery that lottery that 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 which uh, I got which I got later on. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that I remember from the book that that was how you got uh the later on. But but when you first came to the US, where did you arrive and what was what was that experience? Well, I was uh in New York City for a couple of years and it was a cultural shock for me because coming from, you know, uh, uh, a country like uh Bangladesh and landing in New York City, you know, uh, the language was uh uh it was a challenge uh, to me, um, and also the culture was extremely, uh, I would not say new, but it was, uh, it was pretty different, and I had to struggle at the beginning uh, to understand the language and also adjust to the culture. And I can remember the first, uh, the first few experiences I had in New York City. Uh, actually, let me take it back. Uh, when I first landed in Los Angeles Airport, uh, my father gave me all $100 bills. Uh, so when I landed in LAX, I found out that my next flight was uh, Newark, New Jersey, not JFK. Mm -hmm. And I told some of my friends in New York City to come and pick me up from JFK. So I had to make a call to those friends uh, not to go to JFK. And uh, I needed to make a phone call. And I didn't know, I know how it worked. So I went to a, uh, a convenience store in the airport uh, to get some change, to you know, get some coins. And uh, the person who was behind the counter uh, took the dollar, took the hundred dollar bill from me, and said, "Oh, out of hundred dollar bill, and bill means to me that is a service I received. Now I have to pay, like electric bill, uh, water bill. Mm -hmm. So bill, bill was you know uh, 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 actually a, a service. And I was confused that why he's why he was telling me that I had some sort of service." I said, I didn't buy anything from you. He said, that, no, it's a hundred dollar bill. I said, yeah, but I didn't buy anything from you. So I was confused and I thought maybe he's trying to rip me off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I said, give me the money back and I don't need your service. So I went to the next store. Same thing happened. I was confused. Why everybody's trying to rip me off? I mean, 
So yeah. then I went to the third store and I saw um, a South Asian girl. I said, maybe now I'm going to get my help. So, <laughs> yeah. so she finally, I still remember her name, Sangeeta. Uh, so uh, she realized my problem. She said, is it your first time in the U.S.? I said, yes. I said, okay, I got you. I'm going to help you. So she told her coworker that she's going to get out and help me. Not only just give me the change, but also help me to make the phone call. So that was a pretty unique experience. The first day in the U.S. and uh, stayed in New York City for a couple of years and then moved to Dallas, Texas, uh, right before 9-11. What, what were you studying? Uh, I was studying computer uh, systems engineering. Um, and, and then if I recall, like, basically things got very expensive in, in New York and you weren't making a lot of money. And, and so you had a, a business opportunity of sorts in, in Dallas. Is that right? Right, because you know, life style in New York City is pretty expensive, yes. and um, tuition fees also much uh, higher than uh, some other states, universities, some other state. Uh, so while I was in New York City, uh, one of my senior friends from the same military school um, invited me to visit Dallas, and I was pretty excited that finally I'll be able to, I would be able to see the wild, wild west. <laughs> There you go. No better place than Dallas, I suppose. <laughs> Texas, yeah. yeah. So I was pretty happy and excited. Um, so I went to visit him. I loved it very much. Weather-wise, you know, um, it was pretty close to like back home weather, uh, yeah. warm. Humid, uh, warm. He, yeah. Humid, Torrential warm. downpours. Exactly. You know, that one, you know, as you, exp- you know, experience in Dhaka. Yeah. And so, so that, so you ended up in, in Dallas because of this, this friend and what, what year did you move to Dallas? Uh, it was 2000, it was May, 2001. Okay. Um, and you ended up, uh, were, were you working part-time or, or full-time at this uh, gas station? Well, at the beginning, uh, what my friend told me that if I moved to Dallas, um, uh, I would be able to join him as a working partner. He, they, he and his brother had a gas station business. And at the same time, I would be able to go to college uh, uh, and tuition fees much cheaper in Texas than New York City. So I was pretty happy that you know, I'll be able to do both. So we, we opened uh, a gas station uh, in Ju- end of June 2001. And uh, from scratch, cleaning the floor, which I never did in my entire life, you know, taking a, a brush and broom and go to sit on the floor, start, you know, removing the grease from the floor and then go to Sam's Club, buy all the products and put on the shelf, you know, cleaning the glass, clean the door. So it was amazing to have that kind of experience uh, to start a business, uh, which I never had in my entire life. I was very happy and um, started, you know, working uh, with him as if it is my own business. Uh, it was, it was pretty exciting. So were you working on the morning of, of September 11th, uh, when the, the terrorist attacks uh, occurred, where were you? On the morning of nine 11, it was my day off. It was Tuesday. So far I remember. Yeah. And, um, I, I woke up in the morning, turned on my TV and, uh, saw the first tower was hit. And I thought it was a movie trailer, a Hollywood movie is coming about, you know, World Trade Center or about New York City got hit. So I didn't pay attention much. But then I, I saw, you know, uh, same, you know, same um, report uh, was showing again and again. 
And within a few, few minutes, I realized it is not a movie trailer. It is something happening right now. And then I saw the second tower was hit. And I could not believe that it really, it really happened in reality. And I feel horrible. I feel extremely uh, you know, uh, sad and angry at the same time that I just left New York City. And it was my first city in the, in, in the U.S., my first home. And uh, who these people attacked my first home in the U.S., I was extremely shocked and angry at the same time. Then in course of time, I found out through the news media that a group of uh, misguided uh, so-called Muslims did that attack. And I couldn't believe people actually could do that. Did you uh, at any point um, before, of course, you, you were shot, expect uh, some sort of back? backlash uh, against Muslims living in America. I mean, you had been living in the United States for a few years. Uh, you're you know, savvy at, at that point about some aspects of, of American culture and some, frankly, violent aspects of, of our culture. Did you expect there to be any, any, any backlash against, you know, people that looked like you, that, that prayed like you? Well, to be honest with you, no, never. I never uh, imagined, you know, anything like that in the U.S., uh, even though there are a lot of, you know, violence, gun violence, this violence, that violence, but I never imagined uh, facing something like that, even after right after 9-11. But then in course of time, when, you know, people started coming to the gas station angry and um, saying a lot of bad things about foreigners, about Muslims, uh, I was a little afraid. But at the same time, I told myself that I didn't do anything wrong to anyone. Why should I be afraid? Yes, they have the right to be angry because, you know, it is their country. It, is, it was under attack. Uh, if I were in their shoes, maybe I would, be the, I would be doing the same thing. So I understood where they're coming from. Uh, but I never imagined that um, I would be, you know, a target of some sorts of, you know, backlash because of this 9-11 terrorist attacks. So can, can you um, walk me through what happened on, on the day that you were shot? And this was, uh, what, about a week after September 11th? Uh, right, 10 days after, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Um, you know, as I mentioned before that, uh, the friend who moved with me uh, to Dallas, it was his shift to work. Uh, but then two days before, he quit. And, uh, you know, I had to go and cover the morning shift. And um, so it was September 21st, uh, 2001. A, a white supremacist uh, from Dallas went on a shooting rampage, uh, killing uh, Muslims. And uh, I was one of his victims. Uh, so on 21st September, 2001, I was working uh, in my friend's gas station when a man wearing a bandana, sunglasses, and a baseball cap holding a sort of double barrel shotgun burst in. Uh, he pointed the gun straight at my face. And having been robbed before, I immediately opened the cash register and offered him money. Instead of taking it, his gaze remained fixed and he mumbled a question, what are you from? And I was confused because why he needed to know who, who he was robbing if he, if he was here for the money, take it and he should be, you know, uh, leaving this station as soon as possible. So I was confused and I felt a cold air flow through my spine that why he's not taking the money. And with a confused voice, I said, uh, excuse me. And as soon as I said that, 
it pulled the trigger from point blank range. I, I felt it first, like a million bees were stinging my face, and then I heard the explosion. I looked down and saw blood pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. And uh, frantically and uh, instinctively, I placed both hands on my face, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. And I, I heard myself screaming, mom, top of my voice. And then noticed the gunman is still standing there. And I thought if I did not appear to be dying, he would shoot me again. Uh, I fell to the floor and he finally left. I grabbed the phone, but I could not dial 911. I was shaking so vigorously. And I ran to the barbershop next door. And the three men inside looked at me in horror, as if uh, assuming that the gunman was right behind me they scrambled to escape out back. And I screamed, uh, grabbing one of them, please call 911. I am dying. I don't want to die today. And when he made a quick call, I caught myself in the mirror. And the image reflected back was gruesome, like something straight out of a horror movie. And I thought a few minutes before, I was a healthy, smiling young man. And in an instant it takes to pull the trigger, I had become disfigured and losing blood and strength rapidly, fighting to stay awake, uh, fighting to stay alive. When did you uh, come to in, in the hospital? Presumably at some point you must have lost consciousness. Well, no, not really. Um, oh. Instead of uh, lying on the floor inside the barbershop, I came outside. I was running on the parking lot from one side to the other, looking for ambulance. And I was very lucky. The ambulance arrived within a few minutes. And as soon as I saw the ambulance, I started running towards it, taking off my shirts and my shoes off. Uh, because in my mind, I was thinking at that time, I, I have to save each and every single second. I shouldn't be lying down on the floor and expect that somebody would come with a stretcher uh, that could cause my death instead of you know, giving up and lying on the floor. Let's keep myself um, hmm. you know, full of energy and, and full of positive thought that, yes, I'm bleeding badly, but I'm not going to die today. I mean, I was crying. I was running in the parking lot. And uh, so what, as soon as I saw that ambulance, I started running and came behind the ambulance. And uh, the paramedics told me later on that they were surprised to see me running like that. Usually when they receive a call, uh, you know, like this kind of call, uh, somebody's gunshot, they usually go with a stretcher either to pick up a body or to pick up someone from the floor who is struggling. But in this case, they were shocked to see me running like a chicken with the head cut off. Hmm. And um, so I was, you know, taken, I was on my way to the hospital and, um, and I slowly began losing consciousness. And at, at that time, images of my mother, my father, my siblings, and my fiance appeared before my eyes, and then a graveyard. And I felt my time was up. And that's why I saw their faces for the last time. And I, I promised God that if you give me a chance to live, I would do good things with my life. I would dedicate my life for others, especially for the needy, deprived, 
and poor all over the world. But don't take me today. Give me a chance. And and, and you lost your your eyesight in one of your eyes in in that attack. Is that is that right? Well, as a, as a result of this shooting, uh, I underwent several eye surgeries, and unfortunately, though, I ended up losing sight in one eye, and uh, the right side of my face and skull was and remains peppered with more than three dozen bullet fragments. Mm-hmm. I lost my job, uh, my home, my sense of security, and my fiance, but gained more than sixty thousand dollars in medical bills. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you you experienced the other side of, of of America at that point. Our our awful medical debt system. Uh, I did, and uh, I was I was hopeful uh, that you know maybe some of the nonprofits who were helping the victims of 9-11, they would help me. So I reached out to the Red Cross for help, uh, but they told me I was only qualified for one week's worth of groceries. Hmm. And uh, you're, you're racking up medical debt. This, these, these surgeries and, and the medical procedures took years. Um, in, 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 in that time, how... Did you, um, or, or did your, your faith, that, that pledge you met at that time to, to God, as, as you said, um, was, 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 was your faith shaken at all? Um, actually, you know, I, I never questioned God why all these bad things happened to me. Uh, rather, you know, I, I, uh, I truly believed that there was a reason God saved my life and put me through all this pain and suffering I experienced because I was begging God to give me a second chance, right? And now after getting my life back, why should I be complaining that God, why all these bad things happened to me? Uh, so instead of doing that, I asked God that helped me to go through this pain and suffering without losing my hope, my dream, and my faith in you. And uh, I, I remembered um, my parents shared a verse from the Holy Quran when I was a little kid. Uh, chapter 2, verse 286, uh, it says that God will never place a burden on a soul that it cannot bear. And uh, I also remembered another verse, chapter 94, verse 5 and 6. It says that so verily with every difficulty there is relief. Verily with every difficulty there is relief. And slowly relief came. Uh, I was going through a healing process after I was shot. But at the same time, uh, you know, a lot of Americans uh, came forward. And that's the beauty of, the, of our country, that, that Americans are capable of extraordinary grace and compassion when they open their hearts, as, as many did for me after Mark left me dead on a uh, you know, convenience store floor in 2001. So uh, the, the doctor who performed eye surgeries, uh, he, he did it before receiving any, any assurance he would be paid. And the Air Force veteran gave me uh, his car that he was not using. Uh, a Muslim man from the local mosque gave me scholarship to attend his school. So by the, by the mercy of God and with the help of this, all these good Americans, I was eventually able to get my life back on track. How did you come to learn the identity and, and the story of, of your attacker, Mark Stroman? Um, after this incident happened, I, 
I did not pay any attention. I actually I ignored this incident and also my attacker in order to move forward with my life because my life was completely destroyed, uh, you know, um, in a foreign country. And uh, in order to move forward, I had to uh, ignore those kind of those uh, painful things, uh, focus on attending school and also uh, working in restaurants, um, you know, uh, to overcome the fear I developed in course of time that if I go outside, people with tattoo or people with the skinhead will will kill me. So um, I had to overcome those anxiety, those fears, started working in, in restaurants. Uh, so first few years, I didn't actually pay attention. Uh, much on the crime and also my attacker. But in course of time, uh, first I started learning about him through his blog. He was writing a blog from the jail uh, where he explained, uh, you know, he was still bragging about uh, his he, uh, his act. What he did, it was an act of war and he did it because of the love of the country. And um, uh, he also said that he he was hunting Arabs. Yeah. Uh, one of his blogs, but the, the fact is that not one of his three victims was Middle Eastern. And um, right after his arrest, he told the news media that he had done what most Americans wanted to do. They just didn't have the guts. And he claimed he was the true American, a patriot, and that he blamed me and my kind for 9-11. Uh, it really hurt at the beginning that he didn't get the point that he kills some innocent human beings to justify the act, what happened in New York City. Um, so I was feeling pretty sad for him that he's still bragging about his crime. But were you angry time, at this point? I mean, I, were you just, just fuming at mad? No, actually, I was feeling sorry for him because he still, he was not getting that the, the crime he committed, uh, it, it did not bring anything good to society, anything good to the world. He just caused more pain and suffering, not only to the victims, but also to a mourning, mourning nation. You know, uh, so I was feeling sorry for him. It didn't make me angry because I thought he will get it at some point right and, now. And you never met him at, at trial, right? Because if I recall, he was not actually on trial for shooting you, but for murdering a, a, another person. No, actually, I, I met him during the trial. Did, okay. I, I, I did. I was the only uh, live witness uh, who testified during his punishment phase. Um, and my role was to go and identify him in the court and talk about what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, yeah, there was no separate trial because with the one trial, the DA's office was able to achieve what they were looking for, the death penalty. So there was no point of having three different trials. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, at the point that you were were reading his blog, he was on death row at that point. Yes. And at what point um, did you sense that his perspective on his crimes had changed or or was changing? Well, um, my perspective, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I read it at the beginning, some of his blogs, and, um, you know, I felt sorry for him. Then I stopped reading his blog uh, because, you know, it was, uh, it was not giving me any, anything, um, you know, uh, it was not making me angry, but at the same time, it was not giving me anything positive. I felt he also needed some time to go through a process. And right now he is going through that process. At the beginning, it is, it is he's still not getting, but in course of time, he would get it. And I prayed for him 
that God helped him to understand what he did that was extremely wrong, helped him to understand before, you know, uh, he comes to an end of his life. Let him understand. So I prayed for him and I focused on my life, on my on, on rebuilding my own life. And then when I went to the pilgrimage, uh, the Muslim religious pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, I, I gave a deep dive. Uh, and uh, I deeply realized uh, in the, during, the, uh, during my pilgrimage that hate and revenge may bring temporary satisfaction, but does not bring peace or lasting solution to any situation. It only brings more disaster and misery. And I kept thinking about the, my shooting incident. Uh, I thought about Mark sitting on death row waiting to die. And uh, I realized that his life was irrevocably changed because of the shooting, just as mine had. And I deeply felt that by executing Mark, we would simply lose a human life without dealing with the root cause. Instead of uh, hating him, I, I began to see him as a human being like me, not just a killer. And I, I saw him as a victim too. And I, I truly felt that, you know, that I suffered terribly, but I did not see any value in him suffering as well. So all this thought started you know, um, a big change um, you know, um, in my heart. And I came back from the pilgrimage as a changed person. After spending one month in Mecca, prayed day and night with my mother and asked God to help me to keep my promise that I had on my deathbed, that if you give me a chance to live, I would do good things with my life. I will help others. And uh, so uh, here's the irony that um, uh, is the same faith for which he tried to kill me, help me to uh, give me the courage and strength, not only to forgive him, but also fight to save of the life of the man who tried to end mine. And uh, I came back from it. So, huh? so this, this was a religious experience you had on the Hajj that, that um, inspired you to fight to save his life. How did you then just go about doing that? And are there, I suppose, rights afforded to victims of crimes in a situation like this uh, legal rights that you sought to, to exploit? Well, the legal right I I came to know at the end, uh, uh, right after I opened my camp, started my campaign to save his life. But at the beginning, it was, uh, you know, uh, the the upbringing and and then the faith and the stories about uh, the powerful stories about mercy and forgiveness that I learned in my childhood actually inspired me, gave me the courage that that was the right thing to do, save a life uh, by killing him. We would simply lose a human life. And if he was given a chance, a second chance like me, which I begged God, give me a chance. I'm sure he was begging a second chance for him as well. So I thought, I saw myself in his situation. If I were locked up in a, in a, in a death row for 23 and a half hours per day, what would I feel? What would I expect from the rest of the world? So I, I felt extremely empathized for him. And I saw the benefit of keeping him alive behind bars which would give him a chance to, uh, you know, uh, rectify and which may also encourage him to contribute to society in a positive ways. There are a lot of Mark Strumans uh, in the free world, uh, you know, full of hatred and, uh, and ignorance, uh, willing to hurt people. He would be able to reach out to them and inspire them not to follow his path. So I wanted to turn this extremely negative experience into something positive so that it can benefit others. 
And and you went on. A, there's basically a public campaign. I mean, there, there are stories written about you at at the time. Um, what um, at at what point did you get a sense that that Mark Stroman's attitude had had changed? That he saw you as um, a sympathetic human being, someone you know. He saw you as 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 a person. Um. Well, I was able to forgive him um, after the shooting incidents, but that forgiveness did not um, uh, mean forgive and forget. I wanted to forgive him to move on with my own life, rebuild my life in a foreign country. But after coming back from the Hajj, I was able to forgive and uh, and forget, and I wanted to try, I wanted to mend, you know, some sorts of relationship and. Um, you know, to create this, uh, to transform this negative experience to something positive. And I did not wait for him to ask for mercy or forgiveness. I wanted to go ahead mm-hmm. and do the do the right thing. Um, and that's why I I wanted to forgive him in forgive him in public. And I started a campaign to to save his life. And uh, when he heard from his lawyer, uh, I was told he was stunned and he was reduced to tears. I mean, this was not something he expected from a Muslim. I mean, he, he hated me. He hated all the Muslims. He blamed all the Muslims for 9-11. And now the Muslims came forward. Uh, the, the Muslims community came forward um, along with the Jewish, Christians, Hindus, atheists uh, who rallied together uh, to get him removed from death row. It was, it struck him big time. And um uh, in a, he, then he started talking about, uh, you know, uh, how he was raised violently, what went wrong in his life, how he ended up killing people. And in a statement, he said that uh, in, a, in a free world, I was free, but I was locked up in a prison inside myself because of the hate I carried in my heart. It is due to racist message of forgiveness. I'm more content now than I have ever been. So your your efforts to have his life spared were, were ultimately unsuccessful, but you did get a, a, a chance to speak with him. Can you can you uh, tell me about that? Yeah, I um, not only that, I also received a long letter uh, from Mark Stroman before he was, uh, you know, at the end of his life. And if I may read one paragraph from that letter, uh, and I will talk about the the, the phone conversation as well. Uh, in a, in a paragraph, he said. My stepfather embedded some lessons I should have never learned. It has taken me for too long to unlearn some of them, and I'm still working on some of them. I don't know who your parents were, but it is obvious they're wonderful people to lead you to act this way to someone you have every right to hate. Mark Stroman. Um, before he was executed, uh, he made a list of people he wanted to talk, and my name was there. Uh, so I was asked to call him around 4.15 p.m. on July 20th, 2011. Uh, and I was getting ready to go to the court to give a last fight uh, to stop the execution. Uh, so I called the prison, and I was told he is not available, and I called again. They told me the same thing, that he is not available. And uh, I don't know how to give up. So I kept calling. Uh, so on the third time, they told me that I cannot talk to him. And I was confused that since it was his last wish to talk to me, why they would not you know, uh, honor that. 
So I called one of his friends uh, outside uh, who was, you know, uh, managing all his, you know, uh, last wishes and also uh, uh, working as a liaison for him. So uh, that friend told me that I am talking to him right now uh, through a base phone. If you want, I can put you on a speaker uh, and you can talk to him. I said, sure, let's do that. So he, he put, uh, he made a conference call and uh, Mark came on the line on a speaker. And I wanted to tell him what he has heard so far from his lawyers and others that I never hated him and I forgive him. So I told Mark, you should know that I'm praying and I'm doing my best to save the life. And I, I never hated you, I forgave you. And what can you expect from a person who is going to be executed within like a couple of hours? So I was, uh, it was a very emotional moment. And then he told me that thank you so very much for doing everything uh, I never expected. I love you, bro. And when he told me I love you, bro, it brought tears right away in my eyes. And um, I was thinking the time that why he could not say the same thing 10 years ago instead of pulling the trigger on my face. Now you're seeing me as your brother and you're saying you love me. So why couldn't the same thing now because of that tragic moments now you're going to be executed in a few hours and I'm heading, toward, I'm heading towards court to give you a fight to save your life. You made me cry that day you shot me in the face and now you're making me crying again by calling me your brother, by telling me you love me. How, I mean, you've told this story many times. How... How do you feel today telling this story? Like what, what emotions, what goes through your mind as, as you retell this story, you know, for the 20th, 30th, 100th time, 1,000th time? Well, it, it makes me uh, sad sometimes because, you know, uh, this hate and uh, ignorance caused so much pain, not only in his life, but also in the life the lives of his victims uh, and their loved ones. Uh, there is not a single day. It, it reminds me of this. It's okay. Of this crime. Yeah. Of this crime. Uh, and it's not a single day. I, uh, I think about those moments it doesn't make me feel angry or sad but it just reminds me that there's something terrible when um which changed my entire life and um he lost his life because of the hate the ignorance and the reason i share my story everywhere and uh talk about how can we we overcome ignorance and violence because it is painful it is extremely uh, you know sad and uh, and uh, heartbreaking to feel that the people hate you because of who you are and people don't like you because of the way you talk the way you look the way you you know um, you practice your faith the way you dress the way you eat and there are a lot of people out there they treat people in a so you know in a, in a in a different way in a bad way because of who they are and um, 
even though it is uh, sometimes it's not easy to talk about all this experience, but I do it because I see there is a benefit of doing that. It helps people to help overcome their ignorance and see other as a human being, see other that then they're nothing but another human being like them. Um, and and in our last few minutes, can you tell me uh, about World Without Hate and some of the programs that you've started to channel the some of the positive energies that, that you just described um, have come from this awful experience to, to make the world a better place, to change people's perceptions? Well, sure. Uh, the... The tremendous support and uh, you know, positive, positive energy uh, I received during my campaign um, inspired me to, um, to establish the nonprofit called World Without Hate. And the website name is worldwithouthate.org uh, to inspire, I mean, to continue my journey, to inspire people to be compassionate, empathetic, and forgiving. Uh, through this organization, I, I work to prevent ignorance and violence and uh, to eradicate hatred by uh, educating people about the transformational power of mercy and forgiveness and uh, empowering people uh, to connect with others unlike them and uh, take time to learn from one another instead of the stereotypes and uh, labels society has imposed. Uh, it is a uh, it is to this work I have dedicated my life. I mean, I feel that that empathy uh, is my calling, and uh, embracing it uh, was the action I needed most to personally move forward with my life and uh, to do my part to help build a better, just, and a more uh, peaceful world. One thing I strongly believe that we we cannot wall ourselves off from each other. We are instead responsible for one another, and we must learn to respect, understand, and accept our fellow human beings. One of the programs we have uh, is called, uh, we have uh, from my nonprofit, it's called Empathy Ambassador Leadership Training Program. And uh, this is a multifaceted, multicultural, and multidisciplinary program for all ages uh, who want to explore the interconnectedness of self, others, and to bring about the issues uh, that is plaguing American families, destroying our societies. Uh, so that's what we, we, we try to do uh, through this programming, uh, that people know about these few buzzwords, compassion, empathy, uh, you know, uh, forgiveness. But what exactly it means to you? How can you be compassionate? How can you be empathetic? What you need to do? What kind of things you have to do on a regular basis to be a compassionate person. So that's what we try to teach through this uh, program uh, from starting, starting from elementary school to corporate and, and, uh, and prison population as well. And, and is the uh, State Department going to send you elsewhere on, on, on the Speakers Bureau tour? Uh, yes, that's, that's the hope. Uh, you know, uh, once I was selected, uh, my first trip was in Canada, uh, but I'm expecting uh, more to come in the near future. Well, well, I think the world needs uh, needs you and, and needs to hear this message. Um, thank you so much for for speaking with me and, and for sharing your story. I obviously know it's not easy, um, but it's it's such an important message. And and just thank you so much. And and as I said in the outset, I'm so personally inspired by your work, by you, and and I'm sure other people listening to this will be as well. 
Well, it's a great honor to be here, Mark. Thank you so very much. Um, okay, I'll, I'll stop recording. Is there anything else you'd want to add or, or you want to plug or anything else I can do for you? Uh, well, one one comment maybe I can I would like to add, uh, you know, that how how can we uh, uh, combat hate or you know combat hate and violence or how can you make this world a better place? Uh, this is a question I get everywhere, and one one small thing I share with everyone that uh, that it is uh, we need to find ways to to make each other respectfully uncomfortable as as we pursue common good and a positive social change. We sh- we should be finding we, sh- we need to find ways to make each other respectfully uncomfortable. We should not just ignore the issues or the discomfort. Uh, having a conversation, but we should be comfortable enough to have a conversation respectfully. Well, can can I maybe act on that and 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 forgive me, but make you maybe a little uh, respectfully un- uncomfortable? And and you know we can edit this part out. We don't we don't have to keep this, but um, you know the current political climate is one in which there is a resurgence of of the kind of hate speech and intolerance, and, and frankly, it's being directed from from the top. Um, how do you personally navigate the fact that you're representing the United States on on one hand, yet the United States, you know, President Trump is is you know is is spreading hatred and is spreading Islamophobia? Well, you know, I mean, uh, this is a this is a great question. Um, after uh, in the in the beginning of 2016, uh, when the uh, the, the the election season started. Uh, I wrote a letter to 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 then uh, candidate uh, Donald Trump uh, as a American from uh, from the perspective of an American Muslim, and uh, uh, I shared my thoughts and also the, the contribution Muslims are making to our national security and also uh, in this country to make America, uh, you know. A prosperous, a stronger country for all, and I also offered that as an American Muslim, I would welcome any opportunity to sit with you and talk about the contribution that Muslims are making on a regular basis and how can Muslims be a part of the the solution, uh, what uh, the challenges we've been facing, you know, on a regular basis. How can we contribute to overcome these challenges? Instead of keeping us on the sideline, give us an opportunity to be a part of the solution and. You know we are there, and I will be honored to to come and meet you, and 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 talk about what can we do as Americans, not just you know a Muslim American or you know a Jewish American or Christian American, not like that. As American, what can you do? Because this hate and ignorance is affecting everyone, no matter who you are. So it's a it's a national issue. We should be able to tackle this together. So there are a lot of issues out there. We may not be able to solve everything, but there is no excuse not to try to be a better human being than yesterday. The the only failure will sustain if we do nothing to try to be a better human being and do our best to make this world a better place, a world without violence, a world without victims, and a world without hate. And and how people can follow your work and 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 support you is is by visiting worldwithouthate.org. Is that right? Worldwithouthate.org. We also have a Facebook page with the same name, World Without Hate. We have a Twitter handler, WWH Forgive. 
and uh, at Raise for Peace. And I'll I'll uh, post links to to all of them. Thank you so much, Race. This was this was amazing. It's a great honor, Mark. Thank you so much. So, wow, thank you so much to Rice. Thank you all for listening. And, and perhaps as a coda to that conversation, I can let you know that after we spoke, Rice was on his way to, back to Bangladesh to uh, the area in Bangladesh known as Cox's Bazaar, which is where hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees from Myanmar have fled. And, and so Rice's work, of course, continues. If you appreciated this conversation, if you want to support my efforts to bring more and more voices like uh, Rice on this podcast and and give them the prominence that they deserve, uh, please support the show. You can do so by visiting globaldispatchespodcast.com and clicking on the Become a Premium Subscriber link. It would be very, very helpful to me, to the show, uh, that support. Thank you so much for your time. And if you can't uh, take that step, then please do at least consider leaving a review on iTunes. That's extremely helpful as well. All right. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.